you're busy, we get it. Listen on the go to Farm Journal Intel, the latest insights from our webinars and content streams to inform and inspire your way of life. Today, we're featuring audio from the July 2nd Farm Journal webinar, Mid-Season Crop Management. Tar Spot is here to stay. Armyworms are ravaging like sons of guns. And corn borer is making a comeback as more farmers plant non-GMO hybrids. There are no better teachers than Farm Journal field agronomist Missy Bauer and Ken Ferry to give you a scouting edge. Hey everyone, welcome to today's Farm Country Update. I'm Clinton Griffiths. Uh, we, we've got a great panel discussion today with two top-notch agronomists, Missy Bauer and Ken Ferry. Uh, we'll get them started here in just a second. Um, but I want to go through a little bit of housekeeping before we get too far along. We will be taking questions as we go along. We've got the Q&A button there at the, on your screen where you can click and you can type in a question. We'll try to answer those as they come in, or we'll save them toward the end of the program uh, where we can take and, and use some of those other questions as we go. So uh, lots of different uh, ways that we can get those questions answered as we go along. This is just a really interesting mid-season discussion that we're going to have. We'll be focused on kind of how the crop's doing right now, and then we'll start looking at some of the challenges as far as from a pest pressure issue and some of the scouting things happening um, that you kind of want to keep in mind as you go through this growing season. Uh, Ken, Missy, let's start with you guys uh, while we got everybody here. Ken, why don't you tell us about how did the, uh, the season begin this year, and how does the crop look there in Illinois where you're based out of? You know, it's been a it's been a long spring. We started uh, first week in April and finished up planning the first week in June for the most part. Um, so we started out with a lot of water and a lot of replant going on. We did get the whole state planted, so that's better than we were last year at 15% in the preventive plant. Um, but we we got kind of a rough start. Um, now about a third of the state is really looking good. A third is uh, really looking for some water. And probably the other third, you'd say after the last uh, 10 days has got too much water. We got uh, some pretty big rain. So it's it's been a push and a pull so far. Yeah, Missy Bauer, you're based out of uh, Michigan there. Tell us about uh, how crops look and what the start of the season has been for you. Yeah, it was, uh, I mean, we got a few beans in pretty early. We did some early April stuff. Um, those got uh, about 30 some days to come out of the ground, snowed on several times, frosted a couple times, but amazing as beans are there the majority of them are all there so and there was no replants on any of that our corn's probably been the toughest i mean a lot of corn got planted uh the tail end of april and the first couple of weeks of may when it was just so cold um and we lost probably an average three to four thousand and our population's pretty easy in, in the average corn field some replant and we got a lot of rain kind of mid-may there so if you planted right ahead of that there was probably more replant than we've ever done not whole fields but just holes that needed filled in where the water just laid for too long so um but despite despite that i mean the crop as far as maturity i mean we're so much further ahead than last year once it did get warm it's been warm we've had I believe I seen the other day one of the sunniest Junes on record for Michigan. And if you know anything about Michigan, we have lots of clouds. Um, so the sunshine has been crazy. I feel like we're having our July, had our July weather in June. So we'll see. Overall, I think the crop looks pretty good. Other than like in corn, we lost the, the population. What about emergence? Was it uh, pretty uneven or even? What did it look like for you? Corn emergence was pretty uneven. And, you know, that's part of the reason, too, with the stand hit. But just... You know, planting in those cold conditions, we had a lot of corn that took 19 to 20 days to come up, and uh, that's that's brutal on uniformity. 
So, yeah. so we're going to give up some yield there, but most guys were, you know, they're trying to evaluate, you know, would I rather do that have, you know, maybe some variability and, and hurt my stands a little bit, or do I wait, which this year, if you waited, then we got all the rain mid-May. So that meant you were planting, you know, basically late May, early June. And after last year, I think people are just too gun shy to wait. So it yeah. is what it is. They're not perfect stands by any means, but it's in the ground and it's moving along. And on your side of things with emergence, how did it look there in Illinois? Yeah, the, the, probably the first time that I can remember in my career where we had corn emerging 45 days after we planted it. So there's just no way you come out of that with a good stand. Um, some of our best stands were in the later part of May and in the first part of June for uniformity. So yes, there's a lot of frustration with our ear counts right now as some of this early corn is shoulder high and a few leaves from tasseling. Um, it's going to be uneven at the, at the pollination side of it as well. Um, but again, it's, it's looking a lot better today than it did two, three weeks ago, and it's moving along at a pretty good pace. So we're making up some ground, I guess you would say, in, in you know, the, even the low-lying areas are finally catching up and turning green for us. But yeah, stand count. Um, last year, we planted it, most of it in June and had some of the best ear counts come finish this year where our ear counts won't be there because of that long emergence period. Sure, absolutely. Well, let's get into some of the, um, and I just wanna remind everybody, please feel free to jump in and ask questions as we go along here. Uh, but why don't we get into some of the uh, examples that you brought along of some of the pest pressure, um, you know, the, the pressure that we're gonna see out in these fields going forward. And as we're doing some mid-season scouting, some things to be looking for along the way. Uh, and uh, Missy, do you want to begin here or sure. can talk about tar spot? Yeah, tar spot. And the reason we want to throw this in there for for a lot of us, this is a pretty new disease. So, and Ken can talk a little bit about maybe some of the early signs they had in Illinois there, but some documentations maybe in prior to 2015. But whenever it's a new disease, there's just a lot of unknowns, um, a lot of unknowns as far as, you know, what kind of pressure uh, that we end up with and the yield losses. But one thing we know for certain is since the initial identification, uh, the pressures have increased dramatically. So for us last year, um, it had increased dramatically from the year prior. So in 2018 is when it really had yield losses in Michigan, uh, where there was up to 50 bushel uh, losses documented uh, by Michigan State. Um, so that was where people really started to open their eyes. And then last year, it was just really widespread. It come in late, but there was a lot of it. Pretty much you could find it anywhere. Um, so we were concerned coming into 2020 with the amount of inoculum we had overwintering uh, from 2019, what our potential could be. So, But again, it's relatively new disease. Um, it actually, if you flip the next slide there, Clinton, it actually does look like tar on the leaves. Um, but if you try to go to rub it off with your finger, you can't rub it off. So there was a few reports last year of people thought they had tar spot when it was just, you know, fly poop basically. So, but this isn't going to rub off. If you rub your finger on it, it's not going to be, and it literally looks like tar. So that's really the identifying factor is that it truly looks like tar. It cannot be rubbed off. Yeah. And, and we saw the first of it actually the fall of 2013 not knowing what it was and that same field had it in 2014 and then by 2015 we figured out what it was but 
the scenario where once the field gets uh, heavy pressure, then it's pretty easy. The real light pressure does uh, does get mistaken early on, I think, for for dropping some insects and stuff like that. But uh, once it takes over the field, then it's pretty obvious. Yeah, if you flip the next slide, Clinton, these are some pictures that we took, you know, later season. But, you know, once, like Ken said, once it gets loaded up this much, it's pretty easy to identify. Um, the beginning, it's still going to look the same. It's still going to look like tar. It's just you're not going to have as many spots. So where you've got a few spots on a leaf on that front side of it compared to it really explodes as, as the time goes on. If you flip to that next one, Clinton, I think one of the things that with tar spot that, um, I don't know if you want to say makes it scary to some extent, but is it can progress quite rapidly. Uh, so go one more slide, Clinton. Yeah. These are some pictures uh, I borrowed from Marty Chilvers from Michigan State. He's our uh, plant pathologist up there. So this disease in this particular field, they've seen a few basically speckles of the tar spot on July 8th. Um, but on August 24th, which was probably, you know, the time, you know, somebody would have really noticed unless they were in their fields doing some detailed scouting. On August 24th there, you can see within two weeks, it killed the field. Um, so once it gets to that point, the progression's very fast. Now, July 8th to August 24th, you had had plenty of time to react and treat and make decisions. But if you get behind it, it's going to be ahead of you, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Uh, you can drive by your field and within a, thinking it's okay, or what's that spot out there from the road or from a drone shot, and then within two weeks, the field could be, you know, desiccated. Yeah, somebody on the ground is going to have to be looking for it um, when it just initially starts, because by the time you realize you got a problem, you're, you've already given up a lot of good real estate when it comes to photosynthesis on the leaf or the leaf tissue. This, these pictures were from Michigan. So you guys, some of you in other parts of the country think, well, September 7th, your corn will be brown anyways. But this, that field probably normally had got harvested, say, in, in mid to late October. So it basically killed it uh, over a month prematurely. If you flip to the next, uh, I have a, just a couple slides on here. Just And these were just, again, from Michigan State. Just showing the progression, though. Um, this was in 2018, the counties that had documentation, but if you look at the blue stars, those were where people documented 50 bushel losses or possibly greater reported. So it's nothing to mess around with. If you get tar spot, it's not like a question, well, should we treat or should we not, or should we let it go? It's a very, very aggressive disease that can take out a lot of yield. Um, so that's kind of why I showed that. And then I just showed this spread. So that was our map in 2018. And if you look at the map in 2019, pretty much all the counties other than the little white spot there in Michigan, that's Detroit. So other than in Detroit, I mean, pretty much anywhere we grew corn in Michigan, we had the tar spot. Yeah. And Ken, I, I don't know about you in Illinois there. It was, uh, you know, mainly a Northern disease, 2015, 2016, started the progression down. And uh, I'm not sure we found a field last year in our territory all the way down into the southern part of Illinois that didn't have some tar spot. Um, farmers sometimes didn't know what it was and you had to show them when you went out in there. But the heavy infestations definitely have reached the center of the state um, by 2019. 
Yeah, looking at that map, I don't think that there's an actual line there between Indiana and Ohio, other than just how things got reported or not reported in Ohio. I mean, I would say it was just as uh, just as advanced probably in Ohio as it was in, in most Indiana as well. So one of the websites, if you go to the next slide, Clinton, everybody's gonna wanna take note of this website. This is um, one that'll do live updates as the season goes on. So when I got on last week, we were kind of pulling some of the stuff together. Um, there wasn't much on there yet, but probably in another week or two, you'll start seeing some information on there. Um, and it'll show you when your county shows positive um, or if, or it's been scouted but not found, but it's a it's a pretty good way to stay up to date on it, kind of give you an overall uh, idea of what's happening, where it's progressing, how it's getting its start. I think you'll probably get into this, Missy, but whenever it does pop there, what do we need to be doing at our farm? Well, I mean, I think the, the key with trying to figure out the tar spot is um, is really timing on application. I mean, for a lot of guys, fungicide's gonna get applied, say maybe around that VT or R1 growth stage as kind of a, if you're putting fungicide on corn, you know, been a, one of the best timings. Um, but with this tar spot, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, but the tar spot, depending on when it gets started, you might, that might be maybe a little too early to actually have, um, want to get out there and get that on. Where for us in Michigan is specifically, we've been uh, a lot more delayed of when this really gets progressed. So we would want to be doing the scouting to kind of figure out our timing. Do I need to be out there at VTR1 or can I drag my feet all the way to brown silk, beginning of R3, just to buy me some more time and protection with this. So I think the scouting is going to determine a timing thing more than anything. I don't know what you think, Ken. Yeah, I think it's, it's the scouting and the scouting is going to correlate with the weather pattern as far as whether you're dealing with cooler temperatures like you are in Michigan versus let's say Southern Illinois, where we may be dealing with temperatures that are a lot higher and maybe hold it back. But I think the temperature and humidity are gonna be those factors, not so much what states the crop is in, is what are the, what are the, that window of the triangle when this disease is gonna hit. And usually that kind of temperature and humidity is gonna be more favorable later in the season than it would be, let's say mid July. Uh, so I think it's a, Again, it's probably going to apt to be a more northern climate infestation, but it's also going to be uh, uh, tied to the, I say, moderate temperatures and, and higher humidity. And that's really for us in Michigan, it's been, you know, really a late, it's coming really late. Um, so these are some pictures of scouting in uh, last year in September. Um, and it was really coming in. I mean, there was a fair amount to find it there and you could find hot spots. Um, but it's coming pretty late. What we don't know yet today is when it comes in, you know, such late uh, in the season, how much loss is it really doing? Uh, you know, that's the type of information we have to learn more and more about. But just like any other disease, it's probably not going to be out there by itself. So here's in this slide here, you can see the tar spot or those small little uh, dark spots that look like the tar. Um, but then we got northern corn leaf blight in there. We got northern corn leaf spot in there. So you're going to have other diseases down by Ken. You're going to have a lot of, you know, gray leaf spot. You got other diseases to manage too, in addition to the tar spot. So when it comes to fungicides and timings, you might need a fungicide on for a different disease much earlier than you would need it on for tar spot. But with residuals, we're hoping we can basically make it all work in, in that one type of an application. And I think this is a good slide to illustrate 
the stage of this uh, disease when most farmers miss it. Um, here again, that, that looks like insect dropping. So for us, that's what we started out with. And uh, that's what central and southern part of the state that I was in last year would look like this slide. And then within two or three years um, at the, the same window, it would be expressing itself you know, uh, uh, up north, we'd have the, the leaf covered. We're down south, we're just seeing the speckling. And then the next year, you definitely see it step up, especially if you're in corn on corn. Would you go to that next one, Clinton? That shows, just shows a video. Like one thing that we noticed, like as we're walking fields and stuff, um, is that there's gonna be hot spots. So whether that's just where the inoculum got going from the previous hot year. Spot. Desiccated some of the leaves. And when was this shot? This that was shot in that September too, that September 19th also. So the majority of the field, you know, just had the speckling, but then also when you walk into a spot that looks like this. Again, in Michigan, you know, this, this wouldn't be ready for harvest, you know, for another month, probably. Good. Anything else to add on that? You can probably flip to the, okay. to the next one. You know, one thing that we've seen here in Michigan, by the time we got to harvest last year, you couldn't find a field that didn't have the tar spot. So like when we harvest all of our corn plots for the farm journal test plot program, you know, we're in there with the way carts and weighing everything and doing our final like last inspections and stuff. And every single plot that we harvested last year had the tar spot in it. We do think a lot of it come in late last year here in Michigan. Um, and so how much should it cost us in yield? You know, I don't know the answer to that really yet. Um, but I think the timing of when it comes in is going to be in relation to probably how much yield loss that you have. And I think for this year in our state, the later planted full season corn is something that we're probably going to have to pay attention to. We don't like to back out of our full season corns, even if we get planted late because of their horsepower. Um, but if we have corn that's going to be hanging around later in the season and needs that last 30 days to finish, what we call D hybrids that get depth of kernel. Those D hybrids with depth of kernel, they're probably gonna have to be, we're gonna have to pay attention to make sure we keep them protected during that last 30 days of fill. And again, you're moving into a cooler time period when this disease probably has the uh, more potential here in Illinois to take off on us. So it's, it's not really a, a stage of growth as much as it is, does your corn line up with the window for this disease to explode. Is there, are there any standability issues uh, come harvest with these heavy infestation areas? Your yeah, garage, certainly. Yeah, Go for ahead, us, Kim. it's certain hybrids um, seem to cannibalize themselves pretty quick when this damage took place on the leaf. So in a variety plot, uh, a hybrid that would normally be a good standard would all of a sudden come apart. Uh, and the stock quality be challenged. So the, the plant cannibalized itself to try to maintain that ear once it lost uh, all the photosynthetic capabilities of the leaf. 
that's what we've seen, like where these hot spots were, um, you know, anytime you're going to basically prematurely kill the plant, you're going to lose your stalk integrity, um, whether the year itself is all the way done or not, and then just gives you more time for wins and everything also. So here's another shot of just at harvest. Like I said, we couldn't find a field last year in our area that, that you couldn't find tar spot on by the time we got to harvest. Again, don't know how much that hurt us in yield, but our concern was then, you know, how much inoculum we're gonna have here for 2020. Um, and then of course it'll get into the conditions. But if you flip to the next slide, Clinton, this is just our, was one of our hybrid plots from 2018. Um, how many hybrids had some evidence of tar spot in them? 26% did. Um, and if you flip to last year, so that was in 2018, in 2019, 100% of the hybrids had tar spot. And this was treated with a fungicide. Um, it doesn't, I mean, did we help it with a fungicide? Dramatically. If we wouldn't have sprayed, it would probably been, you know, a lot of yield loss. But you spray a fungicide on there, you're not going to walk out there and see zero disease. Um, you know, we've always seen that in all the, all the fungicide trials. You're still going to have some, but you're controlling uh, compared to the non-treated dramatically. That, that's probably one of the frustrating things that, that we experienced here as well. We did see differences of how soon it showed up on some hybrids. So early on when we're scouting the plot, we say, well, it's in these varieties and it's not in these. There's going to be something here. But boy, by the time we got into the throw of things and we were trying to finish out our grain fill, every hybrid had it. So there was differences of when it showed up, but none of them um, per se were clean when we got done. And even what we sprayed um, wasn't clean. So as you looked at some of those yield differences, you kind of wonder if you could have figured out how to get 100% control, what is the potential damage of this, of this disease? Um, because even where we sprayed, we didn't stop it. We definitely made a difference, but we didn't stop it. So I think our big question as, as we're here in 2020 is going to be, I think at least here in Michigan, you know, Indiana, big portion of Ohio, and, and especially like Northern Illinois, um, the inoculum is there. That There's no question of that. We know we had it so widespread last year that there's inoculum that, that stayed with us. The question is going to be, do we have the conditions that are conducive for it to really get going? And how early does that happen? So I think that's going to be what we want to try to figure out as we go. So there's not a lot of good information out there. There's the information they say so far, you know, maybe a couple years from now, they might change, you know, what they, what their opinion is on some of this, but this is from the university saying that um, the conditions that favor it the most are really moderate temperatures um, in, in a lot of relative uh, humidity. So like, in Michigan, if you're anybody travels up here or from here, when you get into August, by the second week of August, it always seems like those are the mornings you'll wake up and it's just foggy out. Well, that's the type of conditions that are really going to be conducive for that. You know, for us more so than July is usually our hot, drier, lower relative uh, humidity. Um, so tracking temperature and humidity and just seeing where you're at, maybe compared to average, may give us some indication, does this explode earlier or later in our growing season? So if you flip to the next slide there, Clinton. This is just of uh, the weather station we have here uh, at our office, um, looking at the, the average temperature. And if you look at that sweet spot, according to the university, between that 63 to 72 uh, average uh, temperatures, 
we really don't get into that here in Michigan until we get, if you click on that, Clinton for the red circle to pop up, until this is look again looking at 2018 and 2019 data so 2018 is in the red and 2019 is in the blue but once we got to about mid-august and on is where our conditions got more conducive for this disease to go so from a yield protection i mean that's a good thing the later it comes in the better um, versus if we get a season where this is shifted and all of a sudden we get a very cool say july for us then that might really change things so if you click on to the next one one more there it's the same idea, but this is relative humidity now. And again, the, according to the university, they're saying greater than 75% relative humidities is going to be where it's going to be more conducive to explode. So again, for us, as we get into about the beginning of August is really when our humidities uh, start to go up. For us, usually July is just hotter, drier, a lot less uh, overall humidity. So that's part of what I think everybody needs to be keeping an eye on is temperature and humidity and trying to see where where's the sweet spot for this disease and where do we hit that at? Is it happening earlier or later in the growing season? And I think that's for, for scouts anyway, that's probably something that needs to be zeroed in on just about any disease that they're scouting for, whether it's northern leaf blight or gray or, or this tar spot. Um, almost always you're going to have to have 10 days, two weeks of conditions or weather conditions for that disease to uh, take off. So if you keep reviewing what the past 10 days, two weeks have been, kind of gives you an idea what diseases to be looking for. And for this one, again, it's, you know, going to be looking for the, right now, anyway, the humidity and temperature ranges that are conducive for it. So, um, you know, weather stations are worth their weight in gold if, if, if you're, you know, you got to look back to look forward, but you can make some predictions on what kind of trouble you're going to get into in the future. Good deal. So we move on to a summary here. Yeah, I guess this is for me, this is just kind of the warning for everybody, you know. I think our opportunity to have tar spot this year on a pretty widespread basis um, is there because of the amount of inoculum that was left from last year. Now, whether or not we get it is really going to depend now on the on the conditions and whether it's really conducive for it. But I just wouldn't want to be caught off guard if I was a farmer and I have no, I'm not used to spraying fungicides on my corn. Um, I don't even think about it. I've never had it in my budget. I've never contacted an airplane guy. These are just things that you need to think about ahead of time. Because if it does become something widespread, it's going to be, uh, you know, why is that plane flying over me? You know, you don't want to be the last guy on the list type of thing. So I would just say preparation. I ain't saying everybody's going to have a spray by any means, but we just need to be prepared. Do you have it in your budget? Does your banker know you might have to do this? I mean, banks are tight, margins are tight. You know, when you go say, oh, I need to go get this money to do this, do they understand? So that's the type of pre-planning that I think needs to be happening. You know, right now, if you haven't already done that, to be prepared for the next, you know, month and a half, that if you need to pull the trigger, you can. And I, and I think, you know, learn from, from the lessons we can learn from this as I work with growers, we talk about, did you have tar spot last year? If they say, I don't know, I don't know means they didn't scout because it is obvious when you see it in the field and uh, guys bring in leaves, want to know what it is. But even this spring, we were able to look at corn residue on the ground and see the tar spot still evident uh, on the leaf itself. So if, if you don't know whether you had tar spot or not, and then if, you may want to go back to think about who's doing the scouting, how are we getting it done? Somebody needs to be in those fields, not only for this disease, but other ones 
especially today, because if we don't have to spray the fungicide, then, um, you know, that goes in the positive side for ROI. But if we let 50 bushels slip away, um, that can be a pretty expensive, uh, you know, poor scouting process, I guess. So we need pest blast out there, not only looking for insects, but looking for diseases and new diseases like this as they, as they come about. How do we, nothing we can't handle, we just got to stay on top of it. We know this is new, right, guys? So, it, I mean, 2015 was kind of the, the start of this thing, and you've mentioned the inoculum out there. We we do think that once it shows up, it's it's going to be around. I do, and, and what concerns me, uh, Clinton, is the fact that when I walk through multiple variety plots and see very little difference, um, always with disease in the past, we know we have our weak ones and our strong ones. This one doesn't seem to have a... We don't seem to have uh, tools in the toolbox when it comes to genetic resistance yet. I'm sure that'll show up and I'm guessing plant breeders will work to, to get there as well. But it isn't one where um, right now we even have ratings, uh, at least I haven't seen any ratings on uh, corn genetics for this disease because it's so new. It'll come in time, but there aren't any that step out and say, man, this this one is bulletproof from it. And, we got to start looking and try to find those. I agree. So as we think about, you know, where does it go from here? This last couple of slides, I think we can show here, Clinton, on the tar spot, and then we'll move on to some insects. You know, be prepared. Make sure you got a plan in place. Um, you know, there could be some areas that need to do earlier applications as you get into that R1. Um, you, you got ground rigs you can do this with for the high clearance um, or airplanes uh, called in depending on what locations you're in and uh, if there are fields that can be flown easy. Um, but we have seen in just our normal corn fungicide plots, um, if we don't, like this is more from Michigan, it's a little different now my Ken because he's dealing with gray leaf spot, but for us in Michigan, prior to tar spot, the main disease we would be going after would be northern corn leaf blight it's a little bit like tar spot in the aspect that the temperatures, it needs a little cooler conditions to get going. So for us, Northern corn leaf blight's been a little later disease as well. It might not really get going uh, until we get into August. So last year we started looking at some timing studies and said, well, maybe for Michigan, maybe instead of the traditional VTR1 timing, maybe we need to look at these little brown silk, maybe early into R3 timings uh, to give us a little bit more protection for when our diseases show up. Okay, so that's different. That's down by Ken where you get the gray leaf spot and that comes in much earlier because it can handle higher temperatures. So think about your timing of fungicides and it should relate to your diseases that your main diseases that you have and let that dial in a little bit by timing. And if you go to the last slide there, Clinton on this, this is one of our uh, fungicide plots from last year. It's just a drone photo. Um, in this particular field, that was an irrigated field, uh, corn on corn. But those controls where you can see the corn brown compared to where we did the different, we are looking at some new experimental products in there um, and looking at some different timings. But on average, we had a 30 bushel response to the fungicide in this field last year. Now, was that just because of tar spot? I don't think so. We had northern corn leaf blot in there, uh, leaf blight in there. We had some tar spot that came in very late, uh, but it was very late when it come in. So. You know, there's other diseases too, not just as tar spot, I guess is, is what it boils down to in, in realizing what you have out there and think about dialing your timings and what's your opportunity to gain yields. You know, corn on corn, irrigated, that's kind of a prime scenario for diseases compared to if I'm dry land corn following beans where I wouldn't get as much pressure. 
Yeah, you're going to bring the humidity with the irrigation, uh, and you're going to bring the wet, the wet leaves through the night, that type of thing. Um, you know, so it's going to corn on corn is definitely going to move up. Corn on corn on irrigation's got to be up at the top of the list. Um, but corn bean rotation doesn't get you out of it. We're fighting it in the corn bean rotation. Uh, this 2019 seems like as strong as we were in the corn on corn. So um, it is it is something that every field needs to be checked. Were there uh, any questions on the tar spot, Clinton, before we, anything that come in there before we maybe moved into more of the insects that we want to hit those questions? No, let's leave, let's leave a couple seconds here uh, and see if people have a question real quick before we move on. We did get one question and we'll, let's ask this question while we wait, uh, see if anybody has a, a tar spot question for you. Uh, the question was, did you see less corn planted in your area this year? Did, did you see people switch to beans uh, given the USDA number that came out yesterday and said we didn't plant quite as much as we'd expected in March? What did you see, Ken? Well, we, we planted more acres because we got them all planted for the most part. You know, we were 15% uh, preventive plant last year, and that was all pretty much all corn. We had very little preventive plant beans, um, and those acres got planted. So a lot of those acres, of course, um, went to corn, uh, and they would have went to beans um, in a normal rotation. So I would say we're at least as many corn acres in this state, mainly as last year, probably probably 10% more um, on the basis that we got, we got it all planted. What about for you, Missy? Um, I would say we had a little bit more corn acres. Um, I wouldn't say it was dramatic though. Um, you know, we guys stuck by rotations pretty hard for the most part, especially where we got a lot of no-till. Um, guys just want to keep that rotation. Um, but we had a few, you know, I just thinking through our own clients, we had a few guys that went um, more corn. Uh, than, than what they did the year before, for sure. So I would say some, but nothing dramatic across the board for us. Alejandro, thank you for the question. We're going to move on here. Uh, remember, folks, if you have questions, there's a little Q&A tab there at the top or bottom of your uh, screen where you can click on there, type in your question, and we'll answer it as we go along. We'll move on to some of the other pest pressure we've been seeing out there. Uh, and We'll start with armyworm uh, and, and what we've been seeing here lately. Yeah, armyworm, uh, we could we knew early on was going to be something we had to deal with, and based on the pheromone traps, the the catches for armyworm coming in from our customer base, um, in 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 a lot of days was uh, considerably higher than the cutworm catches. So, um, not a hundred percent sure why the pressure was higher uh, in in pretty much throughout the state this year than we've seen in the past. But, um, but for some reason, they, they like the spring of 2020. Again, we're, we're more worried about it in our, you know, our oats and our wheat and in our cover crop fields. But um, probably for us here in Illinois, probably as strong an army worm situation we've seen in a long time. Yeah, same thing here, you know, for guys that don't pay attention to moth trappings, I would say uh, definitely caught them off guard just because it's been so long since we've had uh, many issues with armyworm and wheat. Um, and so there is there's a pretty much a fair amount of spraying that had to get done. You know, for us, a lot of guys, if you're in there spraying head scab, uh, 
in we anyways, the fungicide for head scab, a lot of times they might be putting in an insecticide, which this year was by the moth traps, the right thing to do. And then all those fields were totally fine. It was just the fields that only got their head scab treatment put on and, and no insecticide with it. If guys didn't follow back up and check on those, then, you know, the RB worm could get ahead of them. So, you know, we haven't had it in a while. So it was just one of those things I think people weren't thinking about and caught them off guard. Yeah, and in some cases, if it was in the oatlage and guys were chopping that, um, they would move to whatever was next door. So you kind of understand where they, why they call them the army worm, because they will literally march across taking row by row uh, when they do move out looking for something to feed on. And, and weed, it can be devastating on yields because they're basically going in there and, and stripping all, eating all the leaves. So stripping basically the leaves off. When you go to fill that head, such a big percentage of your yield comes from that flag leaf and then the next leaf down. So whenever we talk, you know, managing diseases and we were always talking about keeping those top two leaves clean. Well, same thing on this insects, you know, you lose those top two leaves, you're going to have a pretty big impact on yield. Um, so trying to on top of the scouting, you know, I had a terrible example of a guy called with a question about it on a Thursday. And I'm like, you know, basically you got to get out there, get it walked. If you need help, let us know. Well, all of a sudden Tuesday he calls, hey, I might need help looking at that. Well, what can happen between a Thursday and a Tuesday? An army worm is massive when it comes to yield loss. It's like, we well, just didn't quite understand the full extent of like what these can do in that short amount of time. Because, you know, in this picture here, once these leaves are stripped, we can still go in and kill the army worm. That's not a problem killing them. But how much yield have I already lost? And you're not going to regrow a leaf. So you have what you have. Now, we'll still translocate nutrients up to that head through the stem and everything else. So it's still, you, you've got to still treat it. You don't want to walk away from it. But a lot of yield could have been saved. You know, in this example, spraying this field maybe three or four days quicker than what it got sprayed. Yeah. And a lot of times if they clean off the flag leaf, they'll start clipping the head. And then you'll see the, the weed head on the ground. And there's no, there's no way to get that back. I think in this next slide, this was actually from one of the plots we had done a while back, um, just basically treating on the very front side, like, you know, scouting, you see a couple, you're in there treating compared to you didn't pay attention. And the huge difference, I mean, it, like I said, it just doesn't take much, right? You can kill these army worm pretty easy. And the plants there on the left, um, you know, look good. We've protected everything. The plants there on the right, uh, you know, we, we missed the boat there. So trying to be timely with something like this is, is very, very important. And we're, we're looking in the review mirror now as far as uh, damage in the crop. But again, going back to all the scouts out there and the pest boss that are working that scene, something as simple as a pheromone trap uh, can give you a heads up, in this case, give you a heads up 20 days before you really need to react, maybe more. So uh, it doesn't catch you by surprise. 20 days is a pretty good heads up. That's not too bad. So we had some show up in corn as well. For us, the corn, it was mainly if it was went into a cover crop situation. So or a guy uh, planted into a green situation or even where the cover crop got killed off. But, you know, obviously it was still green when the malls were flying. So the eggs got laid there. Um, so if there was that situation with no insecticide with went along with the herbicide at all, those were the main corn fields that we had to go in and treat and spray. That was the same here. Um, 
when the big flights were taking place, if that if that cover was green, even though they killed it later, um, most of our corn issues, I, I would say all of our corn issues, except for some outer edges and waterways came in uh, our cover crop scenarios where guys were planting green and, and didn't uh, pay attention to the moth light. So you see an example in here, a lot of times in corn, like when you go to scout during the day, these guys are probably hiding. They don't like to be out in the hot sun. So you go out there and see that the leaves have been chewed. And I always look for the droppings or the frass. That's a good indication. But a lot of times they'll be hiding during the day. So it's hard to sometimes find them. Like you see this one stuck all the way down in the whirl. Um, and so it can be a little tricky. So if you go out there and you have all the other signs, they're probably out there. They're just a little harder to find. If you go out there in the evening, you'll probably find the larva. And it is always good to try to find the larva because you want to know how big they are. Because once they get to a certain stage, then they're going to pupate and be done. So if you go out there and they're all just about ready to do that, well, then basically they've kind of, you know, ridden their course already. Yeah, and it's a scenario where it's not uncommon for guys to call in and report the damage but can't find the worm and thinking it's already gone. But situation kind of like cutworm, you got to get down on the ground and look under the residue because they're tucked away during the day and you're not going to see them out on the plant uh, feeding like you would a corn borer or something like that. I think this next picture is just kind of the, you know, reminder, you know, everyone doing the cover crops. I always say there's just another layer of management that goes along with it. And this was a prime example uh, of that this year that, you know, when you got the green and the moths are flying and there's something green, then that's what they want to lay their eggs in. Um, so huge differences if you're planting into the cover crop or not. And the timing of when it got killed, if it got killed really early, then maybe there was no green there when moths were flying. So thinking about when did fields get sprayed and having those good spray records in combination to the moth trapping to give us an indication, when do these peaks happen? What did my fields look like when the moths were flying? That's kind of what we got to think back to and correlate it to. I think the next picture, Clinton has a picture of the pheromone traps. We've mentioned these several times now. So we use just a sticky trap in this case. So uh, there's a pheromone there. I don't know if you can kind of point to it, Clinton. It's a little gray in the middle. And in the other picture, it's the little red dot in the, in the middle there, orange. Uh, that's the pheromone to attract the moth in. And then once they get in there, it's sticky. So they, they get stuck. And then what we do is we're just, you know, counting every couple of days uh, how many moths we have in there. And then, uh, you know, charting it out basically to see when does that peak flight occur that helps us with the timing on all this and then in comparison to you know what are my overall numbers like this year compared to last year or as ken mentioned you know with armyworm compared to maybe cutworm if all of a sudden we're getting a lot more armyworm than cutworm that's going to be an indication of a big year as well and we we uh, hand out traps through our customer base and we call it the trap line um so there's no way an invasion can slip through our customer base without somebody picking it up or a number of people picking it up but uh, this is also something where uh, you definitely are no-till and cover crop guys are always looking at cutworm traps and armyworm traps because they're more susceptible than somebody in the tillage side. But when you end up planting corn in June and you didn't get it sprayed, even if you're conventional till, if it was green when the invasion took place and the moss showed up, there's probably still eggs out there. So it doesn't get you off the hook, but um, it's a pretty simple way uh, and I've got some of our customers go together and they'll put up a trap line and one will check it uh, every other day and somebody will check it on the off days. So 
everybody's calling those counts in. We record them and then we can kind of keep the customer based abreast of what's happening with the flights. And I think in a community, uh, that's one thing maybe a group of farmers could go together and, and log their uh, trap counts and they would know if there's been movement. Usually it's, you know, with cutworm, for instance, it's a south wind that's going to light up those traps. But it's good to know when they show up and then we can start calculating heat units of when the egg laying and the actual larva feeding are going to take place. I think what this boils down to is when you think of something like armyworm, it's actually relatively predictable. We got high moth trap counts, we need to be paying more attention. So it's not something that should catch you off guard. If you're prepared and understand the process of it, you should be able to catch things on the front side of it before much yield loss is really done. Really good. Hey, uh, again, if anybody has questions on that, jump in here, uh, submit a question. We'll see if we can't get them answered or we'll save some time here at the end uh, to answer some other questions if folks have those or they've come up. We've got uh, about 15, 20 minutes here. Let's go through a couple other examples of things to keep an eye on. European corn borer uh, is one of those things that you're watching now. Yeah, the, the European corn borer is, I don't know, I'd hate to say an old insect. Um, the older viewers probably remember a time when this was the insect, especially here in Illinois. You had to manage your uh, corn borer and we would have at least two, sometimes three generations of corn borer. And they were, uh, they were pretty damaging to the crop. With the um, GMO crops that handle the corn borer, uh, it's almost been wiped out in a lot of cases, meaning that uh, uh, customers haven't scouted for it and uh, it's been gone that long. And today we're seeing in some areas um, a movement to non-GMO for the premiums. And uh, in our area, we have one elevator now that's all non-GMO. So that generates a pocket of non-GMO acres and uh, no problem with that, except for uh, I've been surprised, especially this year, as we do have a little bit uptick in the corn borer moths. We were so used to such low numbers due to the BT. Now, as the non-GMO fields come in and we have non-GMO growth on the same operation multiple years, you are seeing a, a maybe a resurgence of the insect, which isn't a big deal, except for the fact that when you're out in the field, you find a lot of our, especially hunger growers, don't even know what it is. So situation they're not used to scouting for this insect and um, have kind of taken it off the radar altogether. And if, if you move to that next slide, might be a clearer picture of what that moth looks like. Uh, again, we can catch this in pheromone traps. Um, this picture was taken in a field that I was in on uh, June 12th. And uh, as we're moving through that field, the uh, moths were fluttering. Uh, we were actually putting in a sulfur sidrus plot and there's a considerable amount of moths moving around in that field. And that field was pretty good size. So if you move to that next picture, um, next slide there, you can see that corn on, on uh, June 12th was tickling the bottom of our toolbar. And corn has a natural resistance to corn, to corn borer. It has a, a dimboa in it, which tends to, the corn borer doesn't like it. So the female would taste the short corn and she doesn't like the um, basically taste of it and she would move on. And that's good, that protects the corn up to about 16 inches tall. Once we get over 16 though, that dissipates and becomes a, an, a uh, place where the female would like to lay her eggs. So in this case, this corn was big enough, the natural resistance is gone 
and the females were finding it and starting to deposit eggs. Corn borer, you know, they could move five mile a night um, and they're moving across the countryside looking for a place to uh, deposit their eggs. When they find a field like this, they'll actually bank up into it. So they will lay their eggs out in the field, do their mating in the outer field edges and road ditches, and they'll bank up in that field. So in this case, it was the biggest field in the community uh, and it was uh, non-GMO corn uh, and, the, and the moths had moved in there and they start to bank up. So you could have considerably higher moth in your field or egg laying in your field than a field next to it that was shorter uh, and, and the moths didn't like it. And the situation where not knowing that's going on kind of catch you by surprise um, and, and all of a sudden you've got a, a, a corn borer issue out there. Now this first generation corn borer, they're going to lay their eggs on the bottom side of the leaf near the mid vein for the most part. So if you're looking for the egg hatches, um, you'd be out there looking at the backside of that vein. Now you have more time for the first generation and the first generation is in the big corn. Uh, so you're scouting your non-GMO fields, um, bigger corn and, and looking for the egg hatch. Easier to find the next picture, next slide, uh, Clint, is the shot holes. So once the eggs hatch, they move on into the uh, whirl and they start to feed. So you get shot hole feeding as that whirl pushes out and uh, mid rib feeding. They're going to feed and bang around in that whirl for a while. Uh, and then they're going to move out of the whirl and into the stalk. Uh, and you have to get them before they get into the stalk or you're not going to catch them. Uh, you're not going to be able to control them. And we talk about stalk feeding on first generation. If we move to that next slide, it usually is a stock quality issue meaning that first generation will cause the stalk to break off below the ear and it will tear up all the xylem and phloem in the plant so it'll shut the ear fill down. So you'll end up with small ears and you'll end up with corn that's tipping over usually below the ear shank um, and, and of course making harvest uh, an issue. Now that moth will pupate and come back out uh, for second generation Second generation, they kind of change their, or they're looking for the highest sugar load. So this moth is probably going to move on to the later planted corn. So it's going to look for something that's greener and has a higher sugar content. So first generation, we worry about the big corn. Second generation, we worry about late corn. So the June planted corn uh, is more of a victim uh, to track the female moth second go around. Unfortunately, here in Illinois, we got both of those in the same field. So as you're doing your scouting, you're looking at your early corn and for first generation, and the females may move to the replant corn in the ponds for second generation uh, to pick it up. Now, second generation um, is, move on to the next slide there, Clint. It's a, it's a bigger concern with the ear. Um, it's not uncommon to see them get into the ear shank uh, and start to, you can see by the frass here that it's in that ear shank. And the next picture, will show you the kind of damage that they're doing um, in the actual ear shank itself. So move to that next one, Glenn. That's what causes the ear oh, shanks to drop. The bigger the ear, we say the harder they would fall. So when we're talking about second generation corn borer, if we go out there at the combine and we didn't catch it, and we had a couple fields last year where pretty, uh, pretty heavily infested that didn't get caught and kind of like uh, what this next slide shows uh, we got ears of corn on the ground of course unharvestable now 
the second generation will also take out the top. So there you would see the top of the corn uh, above the ear may break off, not so much below like we do on the first generation, but we see more ear droppage in, in that situation. So that, you know, it's, it's, an old, it's an old bug, I guess you would say we've dealt with it for a long time, but it's amazing how many uh, people, uh, you know, how long, I guess the BT event's been around, how many people I run across at the farm gate that haven't dealt with corn borer, and their dad may have talked about it or grandpa, but it hasn't been an issue we had to worry about. And I'm not against a non-GMO corn or anything like that, but it's one of those things when it comes back in, the pest boss, the scouts, everybody should know where the non-GMO corn is. And we should be looking at some pheromone traps to kind of keep an eye on what the um, pressure is. With corn borer, you can have a pressure per field. So sometimes if you're driving at night, this time of year, um, you might drive by a cornfield and all of a sudden your windshield is just smattered with corn borer. And that's a pretty good indication that one of those fields you just drove by is the, the attractant in the neighborhood. That's where they're starting to bank up and a trap, a trap would help you identify that as well. And Ken, uh, will those pheromone traps, uh, Mickey's asking this question, will those pheromone traps catch that second generation corn borer? They will. You'll be changing lures um, in the process. Now, once you know the first generation, you can calculate when the second generation by heat units is going to show up. So it's kind of, you kind of, the whole process develops over time. Now, we got a little bit of a break here in parts of the state because during egg laying, it was low humidity, high temperature, and the survival of the eggs was uh, quite a bit less compared to other parts where they, we had high humidity and the, the survival was pretty good. So he, survival of the young, they don't survive very well, but um, you get one per plant, all of a sudden you got a problem out there. And then you do have to go out and scout, of course. Um, just having the moss is gonna tell you what, when to scout, which fields are gonna be more susceptible, but you're gonna to have to go out there and look for um, basically how many larvae you have per plant. And there's a number of worksheets that you can get from any of the universities where first you're gonna figure out what is my larva per plant, and then based on your growth stage, what is your loss per larva? And you kind of calculate that into this equation uh, and look at your control. So, you know, anticipated control being anywhere from 50 to 75, 80%, depending on uh, where you're at and what kind of conditions the crops in and stuff like that. So you can do a, a calculation based on, um, you know, based on your ROI. Unfortunately, especially for first generation, it doesn't always line up with the potential for a fungicide. So it isn't like you can piggyback it with something else sometimes second generation will. Um, in this case, you're gonna put all the costs to making that application to the corn borer control. But, uh, and I think the next slide is another example from Nebraska. There's a lot of scouting manuals that would have the numbers that you can punch your own price per bushel and cost into that equation uh, to make that decision as far as where you're gonna go. In our book, we would be a little maybe proactive. If the, you do it through the worksheet and there's a break even for control, um, we would pull the trigger uh, because there's a good chance that it's just gonna continue to get worse um, added, you know, meaning that you're just gonna continue to pick up more pressure as time goes on as well. Got a question came in here on this from Alejandro asking about uh, which insecticide trait do you consider more effective in this? Is there one that's better than another? 
Um, I don't know. I guess, Missy, have you seen any separation up there? It looks like good control of just about everything that we look at here. Yeah, not not so much in corn borer, I wouldn't say. I haven't noticed. It's it's pretty lethal, um, meaning that uh, that's why so many customers have kind of forgot about it. We just don't see resistance like we would with the rootworm side and stuff like that. Um, you know, it, it's it's been controlled and it's still not a big issue, uh, but it can be a big issue for a small operation if you're not paying attention to it and you've been into your second, third, fourth year of of a non-GMO program within the area, but it's not a, it's not something to panic on. It's just something to be aware of uh, as far as we can, we can manage this one. We've got a lot of experience with it. Application wise, typically we see better control with granulars uh, in the first generation. So you get some granulars down in the world in the leaf sheaths as that plant's growing, you're, you're kind of treating the inner world. Um, by the time we get to second generation, the plant's done growing, so there's uh, we don't worry so much about the world, and, and a liquid application does uh, does okay there too. But we're talking about treating non-GMO fields. We're not talking about treating a refuge that's there for a purpose to keep resistance managed. You're talking about guys who are growing non non-GMO hybrids. So you wouldn't go out there and and be treating your refuge in the field. Um, because you kind of be defeating the purpose of the refuge. You want to produce some um, corn borer out there so you can manage that resistance. But, uh, and I don't know what the percent of acres are in Michigan, Missy, as far as guys looking at non-GMO, but it, it tends to grow every year here. And I think mainly due to the ROIs as far as budget, the premium that they can pick up on it is now got their attention. I would say we're seeing more interest in it. We don't have a lot of acres yet, but definitely more interest, more questions about it for sure. Good questions, everybody. Thank you for sending those in. Uh, um, in fact, we've got uh, maybe here about five more minutes or so, 10 more minutes for questions. Uh, Craig did send us in one uh, to go back to Tar spot here for just a second, asking about uh, does putting 28% UAM through pivots enhance the development of Tar spot? Um, what do you think? Um, I don't think so. I mean, the pivot itself, obviously, keeping things wetter longer, but whether or not you do some injections for your nitrogen, I don't really think is going to have any merit uh, on that. And we would highly recommend that. I mean, the plot data that we we have done of um, fertigating with uh, UAN through the pivot's been very, very good, very successful. Um, I think it's just in irrigation in general, I do think you're at a higher risk because of leaf wetness and higher humidity levels and stuff. So I think overall your risk is higher because you're irrigated with or without the 28. Um, I don't think we'll necessarily change the tar spot side of it. And I'd encourage you to do, to go ahead and fertigate. I don't know. What do you think? I Ken? would add to that in our, in our uh, nitrogen plots where we have the low rates just to looking at end response, it seems like the tar spot will ramp up faster and harder. And I assume it's because the plant's defense is down, meaning that um, I don't think you want to be nitrogen deficient when you're dealing with tar spot. And that's probably the same for any disease um, because the plant isn't uh, at full capacity. So probably the other way around, it, it may actually, if it keeps the plant healthier, it may actually um, slow down some of the, some of the damage. <clears throat> Well, we'll wait and see if anybody uh, submits one more question. In the meantime, why don't we we'll kind of move toward kind of some final thoughts here. And I think that 
you know, maybe I'll ask this question to both of you. We've been in a last week or two where we've had some higher heat, um, in some cases a little less rain. What do you see going here into July from a, a, a plant health, plant disease? Of course, we've, we know we've got to get through, um, you, know, at, you know, as we pollinate the crop here. What are your thoughts on where we sit given this kind of surge of heat that we expect for the next 10 days or so? I think the biggest thing is going to be, you know, watching ET rates here. I mean, you know, depending on what the stage of your corn is, I mean, we've got a lot of corn here, um, you know, getting into that, you know, V10 to V12 growth stages, um, you know, for the amount of water uptake, we're going to start really needing water in that plant. Combined with the sunshine and the heat, we are going to have some really high ET rates. So for the guys irrigating, uh, paying attention to your ET rates and making sure we're staying on top of that and, and not to get behind and realize what that water usage uh, is going to be peaking out here uh, as we go from now and really until tassel time. Um, a lot of uptake, not only of water, but then nutrients as well, making sure you got your nitrogen in place uh, for that. So paying attention to ET rates, especially for our irrigation guys, um, you know, like I said, in Michigan, we're not used to this much sun, so we are, we're liking it from that side of it, but uh, uh, it's going to be a little different because we are going to crank some serious ET rates that we're not used to cranking uh, at this time frame. So paying attention to that, I think, is going to be critical. And I would say the same here. Our, our corn is uh, really catching up due to the high ET rates. The one-third of our state that uh, is looking for water um, the low humidity, high ET rates are bringing some stress. We've dealt with some rootless corn syndrome on the June planted corn that uh, uh, has been a little bit of a challenge. If the trend continues in that portion of the state, then we're probably going to have to start to think about the, the nasty thing called spider mites. Uh, we're going to have to look for some of those other diseases that would come along in a dry situation with low humidity. Uh, we're seeing some some of our moisture temperature scenarios that don't look too far off from 2012. The good news is you can go 10 miles and that can change, but um, situation where we're probably under, in the soybeans anyway, we'll be under a spider mite watch if this doesn't change and we have to start paying attention to what we do for our roadways and waterways and stuff as far as um, not, not kicking the spider mites out of the field any sooner than we have to and keeping them under control because we're, a lot of these beans are into heavy flour right now. Good. All right, any final thoughts from either of you? Uh, looks like we've wrapped up on questions um, for now. Uh, why don't we just get into some final thoughts? One thing I'd encourage everybody to do too, especially in your corn, if you haven't had the opportunity to re really get out and walk some of these fields, but get out there and do some of those estimated ear counts. Can kind of refer to that, you know, first thing when we got on here. But we know stand counts are down in a lot of areas just because of that long emergence. But really try to evaluate where you're at in your ear count, because I think as we go forward and we're trying to make more decisions to manage this crop and how to manage it, when you know what your yield potential is based on ear count, I think we can make a lot better decisions as we go forward here. So obviously there's not ears out there yet. How do you do that? You're just looking at uniformity. If you got a stalk that's skinny, if, if you got spacing problem, then you know those are going to be the plants that aren't going to hold good harvestable ears. Um, so try to get out, get an idea of what your ear count actually is. You might have 33,000 plants out there, but maybe your ear count's only 28,000. That's going to be important to know as we go forward. And what about you? Any final thoughts? Yeah, kind of the same thing. It, it, 
once you find your ear count isn't what you want it to be, hopefully your scouts are comparing it to the past five years, that type of thing. Uh, then dig in right now, why isn't it? Um, what caused the loss of ears? Is it uneven emergence, insects, whatever it is? Because the only way you can fix that or you know, tune it up for next year is to figure out why you're you know, five or 6,000 off the mark from where you wanna be. In a lot of cases, it's gonna be planning conditions and weather. And that if we can document that, it makes it maybe a little bit easier to make the decision next spring when we're up against the same questions. Very good. Well, I want to thank you both for joining us today. And of course, we've got uh, another farm country update that will be happening on July 9th. Um, and so we just want to uh, make sure that everybody uh, gets, you know, registered for that. They come out and uh, take a look at it and listen. Uh, we'll have some more updates on that coming out here pretty soon. Uh, Ken, Missy, thank you for, both for being here. And of course, if anybody has any questions, you guys are easy to find. Uh, we can Google both of them and uh, send them a note. I'm sure they'd be happy to, to get you some answers along the way. Thank, thank you both for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah. Want more great content like this? Farm Journal Field Days is a combination of virtual and live programming on August 25th through the 27th. The more than 100 informational sessions align with key interests and needs of the crop and livestock sectors. Visit fjfielddays.com to register now. That's fjfielddays.com. <laughs>